Hello, if this is your first time here, welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. If you've been here before, welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We are in Holy Week, and today, or now I'm going to finish up Good Friday. If you've been following this day by day through Holy Week, I am deeply sorry that I was not able to finish this up on Friday, because as I'm recording this, it's actually Saturday morning. Uh, but we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again to study your word and to get into depth of what's going on in your workings with Jesus Christ and what you accomplished that final week of Jesus' life and what you above all, Father, accomplished for us that we are so deeply thankful for the forgiveness of our sins through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord. I ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might gather more understanding of the things that you desire to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is part four of Friday of uh, Holy Week. At uh, this point where I left off in our last study, Jesus is now nailed to the cross. You know, I'm sorry for putting it that way, but there's just not a nice way to say it. But on the same hill known as Mount Moriah in the Old Testament, called Golgotha in the New Testament, possibly on the exact same spot on which Abraham tied and prepared for sacrifice his son Isaac and was stayed by the angel of the Lord. God the Father sacrificed his son to pay the penalty that we owe for our sins. Now, let us sink in for just a moment. You know, Jesus' first words from the cross were a prayer of forgiveness. Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Jesus put his own teaching into practice in this most dire of moments. He taught his disciples to love their enemies and to pray for them. He became an example for all believers who suffer for their faith. Jesus' prayer did not absolve those responsible for his crucifixion of all their sins, but it was a prayer that they not be held accountable for the sin of killing God's Son. Paul expressed the idea this way to the Corinthians. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, several of, Je of Jesus' female followers watched from a distance, while a few others stood close to the cross, including Mary, Jesus' mother. And in a very touching exchange, Jesus entrusted his mother's care into the hands of the beloved disciple, whom we believe to be the Apostle John. Now, Jewish custom at the time required that the oldest son provide for and take care of the mother if the father died. You know, it's an indication, it's one of the few that we have from Scripture, that Joseph, Mary's husband, had died before Jesus began his ministry. You know, as Jesus suffered, struggling for every breath, he focused on others. You know, you may wonder whether the words spoken by Simeon when Jesus was just an infant were coming to her mind in those moments. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the 
fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's from Luke chapter 2. You know, and then Jesus is taunted and mocked from all sides. Those passing by, the religious leaders, Roman soldiers, even the two dying criminals that are crucified next to him. Those passing by are described as yelling insults, blasphemio in the Greek, and shaking their heads at him as a sign of contempt. The accusation that Jesus supposedly threatened the temple was raised, and the taunt, save yourself, became a repeated theme, and here it's spoken for the first time. The irony of the moment is the only way Jesus could save others was not by saving himself. Now the chief priest and the scribes joined in the mocking, taunting Jesus to come down from the cross and save himself as he saved others. That's Matthew 27:42. And rather than gloat from a distance, they came near the cross to revel and bask in their supposed victory over the Galilean carpenter. Even the soldiers who gambled for Jesus' possessions couldn't help but participate in the celebration. Then they offered Jesus sour wine to drink. Now the criminals hanging on either side of Jesus mustered the strength to add their own insults. You know, you'd think that as the two criminals fought for every breath, they wouldn't be expending their strength joining this mocking. At some point, though, one of the two criminals came to his senses, and he began to rebuke the other, the other guy for mocking Jesus. Now, the conversion of this thief on the cross reminds us of Jesus' power to save. We have no idea what happened to change his mind, but God's grace is at work in him. He went from taunting Jesus to defending him and asking Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. While the words faith and repentance do not appear in the passage, you know they are evident in the man's heart by his words. Then after the thief rebuked his fellow criminal, he acknowledged they were receiving what they deserved for their crimes. Jesus had done nothing wrong. This acknowledgement of Jesus' innocence was added to the early pronouncements by Pilate and Antipas. We hear his words of faith in a simple request, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that amazing? amazing? When this criminal looked at Jesus, he saw a king. And his only request for king was for King Jesus to remember him when he entered his kingdom. Now, the salvation of this thief on the cross is a reminder of the depth of God's grace. And Jesus' response to him was brief. Today you will be with me in paradise. Par- that's another name for heaven, the dwelling place of God, the eternal home of the righteous. The Septuagint uses the same Greek word to refer to the Garden of Eden back in Genesis. Now, Jesus' words suggest the restoration of the close communion between God and Adam and Eve prior to the fall. At this point, Mark supplies another time indicator as darkness descended on the land from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, which would have been around 3 o'clock p.m. Now, darkness can represent lament and divine judgment. 
You know, Jesus' death had cosmic consequences. The prophet Amos said, And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. That's Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10. And you may remember something similar to the darkness happened over back in Exodus in chapter 10 where Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. Now back to the crucifixion. That's during this darkness, Jesus cries out with a sense of abandonment. You know, Mark quotes the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which he translates for his readers, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Matthew quotes the Hebrew equivalent, Elah. Jesus' words are actually the opening line of Psalm 22. Now that's a, a lament psalm that portrays the desolation of the suffering of the righteous one in verses 1 through 21 and the eventual triumphant, tri, triumph and vindication of this one by God in the, from verses 22 to 31. Now Mark and Matthew's gospel, these are the Jesus' only words from the cross. He's abandoned by friends, mocked, tormented by his own religious leaders, surrounded by thieves, and Jesus cries out to God. And they, even these words are misunderstood and mocked by his enemies. You know, Psalm 22 begins with despair, but it ends with victory. And as for Jesus' sense of desolation, I'll refer you to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, because that's what comes to my mind. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Some of us need to remember that, that your sins may ha have hidden his face from you so he does not listen. Yet in quoting Psalm 22, 1, Jesus, you know, I believe, had verses 22 to 31 in his mind because those are the declaration of victory. The opening words, my God, my God, are an expression of faith. It's evidenced by him using the personal pronoun, my God, mine. You know, Jesus never forgot that his death was the purpose of his coming. And these words are intensely deep and intensely mysterious. As Jesus bore the sins of humanity, there's a very real sense in which he had to be cut off from the intimate fellowship and manifest presence of the Father. Jesus' anticipation of this moment, anticipation of, of this moment, is what caused his agony in Gethsemane. And then we can look at passages such as the following reveal something of what was taking place during those hours of darkness. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, 
he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. That's Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 10. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? Paul writes in Romans 3.25, Whom God set forth as an expiation through faith by his blood to prove his righteousness because of the forgiveness of sins previously committed. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then again Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You know, when Jesus said it over in John 19.28, I'm thirsty. You know, he's no doubt speaking quite literally. But his words come from Psalm 22.15. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And they fulfilled Psalm 69.21. They gave me vinegar to drink. Because in response, Scripture tells us, a bystander offered a sponge soaked in wine and Jesus drank from it. You see, Scripture was being fulfilled down to the smallest of details. Now, the taste of the wine strengthened Jesus physically. Then in John 19.30, he cried out, It is finished. Tilio, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Those are, that's, that's the word he cried out. Mission accomplished. He completed the work his father gave him to do. He bore the sins of humankind in his body, and he suffered God's wrath to redeem a people. For, uh, for his own possession. Jesus then cried out, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Lest Luke 23:46. Now, his final words are a prayer of the commitment of his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. Remember earlier he cried out, My God, my God, in despair. But here, he returned to the term of endearment, Father. And in case you've forgotten, that's the word Abba, which can be translated into English as Daddy. Daddy, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Now several things happen as Jesus died that have theological significance. First, the curtain that hid the Holy of Holies and the temple was torn in two. As tearing is a sign pointing to the believer's access to God that's promised in the New Covenant. You can read about that in Hebrews 6 verses 19 to 20. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 3 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20. Now the fact that the detail is added that the curtain was torn from top to bottom means God tore it. Matthew describes an earthquake. He describes splitting of rocks and the opening of tombs in Matthew chapter 27. 
And that's actually one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament because we don't know who those people were. Who were they? Why did God select them to be raised along with Jesus? Who did they appear to? You know, the main point may be found in Paul's statement to the Corinthians. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now while these events are taking place, a Roman centurion watching as Jesus took his final breath confessed him to be the Son of God. Now Jesus is not likely the first person the centurion had, had seen die. You know, but although no one ever died like Jesus died. But what that centurion witnessed during those hours included Jesus' prayer for his enemies, his self-control as his opponents taunted him, the exchange between Jesus and the repentant thief, supernatural darkness, Jesus' cry of abandonment, his prayer of committal of his life into the Father's hands, and then his final breath. You know, all those events and more move this battle-tested warrior, the centurion, to make this dramatic confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, you shouldn't take his confession as a Trinitarian affirmation of Jesus' deity, but it was nonetheless, you know, a powerful confession. You know, the readers of the Gospels, however, understand the depth of the confession much better than the centurion did. Witnesses to Jesus' execution, you know, just returned to their homes. Mourning is miscarriage of, of justice, Luke 23:48. Anyone who was fully aware of the events, even his enemies, knew Jesus did not deserve to die. But on the, you know, the chief priest's envy, Judas's greed, Pilate's cowardice led to his execution. But on the other hand, Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for humankind's sins. You know, those who believed Jesus to be the Messiah watched in stunned horror and silence. Because now the prophet from Galilee is dead. Now because that day was a preparation day before the high Sabbath of the Passover, the chief priest requested that Pilate have the legs of the three crucified men broken so they could die and not be left hanging on the cross on the Sabbath. Pilate consented and gave the order. So the legs of the two thieves were broken first. Now when their legs are broken it meant they can't raise themselves up and breathe and they simply die from asphyxiation. But they discovered Jesus was already dead. A soldier pierced his side with his spear. Now John indicates that Jesus' legs not being broken and, you know, tells us and the piercing of his side fulfilled the scripture. Now the Passover is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house and you may not break any of its bones. That's Exodus 12:46. And then at this point Joseph of Arimathea stepped into the story from out of the darkness. Now, his courage is demonstrated by asking Pilate for the body of a man condemned by the Romans to death. Now, what you don't know, probably, is the fact that in order to claim a body that had been condemned and executed by the Romans, 
order to claim it, you had to be a family member. So Joseph, in some shape, form, or fashion, is related to Jesus. You know, but at the same time, Joseph of Arimathea still had to consider what the Romans would, would think, but he also had to think about what the chief priests are going to think. You know, this, Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, and his compatriots there would not have been happy, one of their own, giving Jesus' body an honorable burial. But nonetheless, you know, Pilate gave him position, permission to take Jesus' body for burial. Now, John tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body for burial, and they laid it in Joseph's new tomb as a group of women watched. Now, only Matthew tells us about the chief priest and the Pharisees' request to Pilate to secure Jesus' tomb in Matthew 27. Now, it helps prepare the way for the later collaboration of the guards and religious leaders to concoct the lie that the disciples stole Jesus' body. You know, Jesus' enemy remembered his statement, he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day, even though they clearly did not believe it. They thought maybe Jesus' disciples would, would come and steal his body and say, see, he's not in the tomb. You know, but while Jesus' enemies remembered his statement, his disciples are off somewhere hiding from the authorities because they either didn't remember he said he's going to rise on the third day, or they just did not believe it. Now, back to Jesus' seven sayings from the cross, because they encapsulate much of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. But I'm only going to focus on the first saying. I'm going to leave the others for you to do. And maybe sometime in the future, I'll come back and we'll do a session or maybe two or three on, on these seven sayings. But the first one, Father, forgive me, because they do not know what they are doing. Now I want you to think about that. The words of Jesus' prayer include those passerby who shook their heads in disgust at him, the Roman soldiers who taunted him, the chief priest who stood near the cross mocking him, Pilate who convicted him of treason without any evidence, the religious leaders who condemned him for blasphemy, and those criminals on either side of him. You know, as I said earlier, Jesus' prayer was not to absolve them of all their sins, but for the fact they did not understand that they were killing the Holy and Righteous One. That's Acts 3.14. But it's also a prime example of Jesus practicing what he preached. You have to remember, he said, we're to turn the other cheek, and we're to forgive our enemies. Yeah, and not only that, Jesus' prayer made a big impression on the early church. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, martyr prayed a, simple, a similar prayer as he was being stoned. Luke described the scene this way. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. You know, Stephen died as Jesus died, without any bitterness and ill will toward those who killed him. Peter made a similar point when he said, For you were called to this. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's First Peter chapter 2, verses 21, 22, and 23. You know, Jesus taught us not only how to live for God's glory, but he taught us how to die for God's glory. Now, of course, Jesus' death redeems us from sin and empowers us in our own sanctification. We live in a fallen world. Almost daily we're tempted to become embittered or resentful toward others simply because of how we're treated. You know, in our own strength, we're not able to respond as Jesus did. But he hasn't left us on our own. He has provided the Holy Spirit to strengthen us against sinful responses. Bitterness is an affront to the cross of Jesus. Now, it's now I'm going to cover Saturday just a few words. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. Period. Nothing happened on Saturday that we know of and from Scripture. And again, you're going to find some scholars who are going to tell you, well, you know, that's when Nicodemus and Joseph came back to the tomb and, and you know, put all those spices on him. Because they didn't have time on Friday because it was, you know, the sun's going down. It's almost time to start the Sabbath. Uh, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says they did it on Friday. And I think it's best to remember, just read what your Bible tells you and take it from there. Don't read more into it than it's there. And by the way, both Joseph and Nicodemus, because they touched the body, would have been ritually unclean and not fit to celebrate the Sabbath. Think about that. Thank you. This has been Friday and this has been this has been Good Friday. And this has been the perfect puzzle.